You are listening to KWVA Eugene. You Own the News is a student-produced program at KWVA. The opinions expressed on this show do not reflect the opinions of KWVA, the University of Oregon, or any other affiliated organization. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please feel free to email news at kwvaradio.org with the subject line, You Own the News. Hello and welcome to You Own the News. We were recording today on Sunday, May 27th, so some things may have changed by the time you are listening. Today in the studio, we have Jessica, Connor, Matthew, and me, Sydney. And here's a week in review. Last Friday, the people of Ireland voted to overturn the country's ban on abortion. The newly overturned Eighth Amendment equated women's rights to fetus rights. The two exit polls from the vote on Friday display a 70 to 30 margin in support of the repeal. However, the constitutionality and heavy Catholic political influence in Ireland made this vote particularly controversial. Abortions had only been allowed if the mother would otherwise die. While abortion had been illegal in Ireland since at least 1860, it was only put into the Constitution in 1983. That passed with a 67% margin and resounding support. Now, though, before the repeal is implemented, Ireland's parliament must pass a law repealing the abortion ban and regulations must be discussed. Irish Prime Minister Leo Varadkar has drafted a bill in permitting abortion under 12 weeks, but it has yet to go in effect. So what's the timeline for implementation of this resolution? So basically, yeah, the whole plan for moving forward has already been drafted. It just hasn't been put into place yet. An interesting detail about this story is just how much news has been made about women coming back to Ireland from around the world to vote in this because so many women in Ireland have been waiting for so long for this to be happening. They worked really hard to make sure that this went the way it did. Yeah, I think one also really notable aspect of this story is there was controversy even in Ireland as to who should be allowed to vote for it because a lot of people were saying that men shouldn't even be allowed to vote for the repeal of this because it was seen as specifically a women's issue. And I think that that is um, a sentiment that can often be ignored in other places just because it's seen as a moral issue as opposed to specifically a women's issue. Yeah, not to make this super U.S. centric, but it's kind of um, encouraging to see a nation sort of moving forward as I feel that U.S. policy is in many ways turning back in terms of the abortion argument, I feel like in many ways it's getting harder and harder in the United States for women to get access to reproductive health care. So it's nice to see it going in a different direction elsewhere. This past May 9th, California became the first state in the U.S. to require solar panels on new homes. Most new units built after January 1st, 2020, will be required to include solar systems as part of the standards adopted by the California Energy Commission. Solar power provides almost 16 percent of the state's electricity and the industry employs more than 86,000 workers. The housing mandate is part of Governor Jerry Brown's effort to slash carbon emissions by 40% by 2030 and offers a playbook for other states to follow. Critics warn that this measure could drive up the cost of buying a house by eight to $12,000. Rooftop panels can either be owned outright or rolled into the home price and paid on a monthly basis with the mortgage. The Energy Commission estimates that for residential homeowners, these numbers will be offset by standards, which add about $40 onto a monthly payment and save consumers by $80 on monthly heating, cooling, and lighting bills. What's interesting is these carbon-based emissions 
are creating economic and physical strains on the power system as a whole. With extensive new, ad new additions to alternative energy, the state's actually on pace to reach their target ahead of 2030 of cutting carbon emissions, but these plummeting prices are forcing renewable power plants to throttle back production. California's solar and wind farms shut down or dialed back about 95,000 megawatts of electricity in April, which is enough energy to power more than 30 million homes for an hour or more. With prices for solar energy going down, there's also a risk that people who can't afford solar energy will suddenly face increasing power costs because of an increasing reliance on alternative energy, making power companies raise the prices of traditional power sources. Even with the inevitable complications that arise, though, proponents see this new policy as a positive change for consumers and a far-reaching government precedent in support of sustainable energy production. Yeah, that's a very comprehensive look at what's happening. California is very interesting. They actually... Uh, there was some talk a few months ago about their plans to have a different car standard when it comes to gas consumption. You're bringing up the fact that for people who can't afford it, it's going to put a strain on prices and drive up the prices of non-renewable energies. That's an interesting look and that's something that is a downside to what seems like on the surface might be a positive story. Yeah, it's interesting because these huge comprehensive things usually bring up other complications. And one big criticism of it is that it's ignoring the biggest polluter in California, which is car emissions. Home-based power emissions have dropped in the past couple of years, but car emissions have gone up by 3%. I do think it's an exciting step forward for the most part. Um, and while it might drive home prices up in the short term, I think that the goal behind this would probably be to create a movement where, where this is the standard. And at some point, these prices won't seem higher, they'll be the norm. And while that is a downside to adding these solar panels, I think that any sort of major change or shift, there's usually a downside at the very beginning, and you just have to swallow that in order to make change for a better world in the long run. This is interesting, though, because it's decentralizing the grid to a certain extent. What it looks like is that people are going to have the option to have a storage unit just at their home. Um, and that's actually one criticism of the plan is that this takes away possibly from power generated by the entire grid because right now California doesn't have enough storage units to store these alternate alternative sources of energy. So a clarifying question, it seems like there's a movement towards retaining this power rather than putting it back into the grid. Like they want to invest more in the battery system, which will then hold the charge for when sunny days don't occur. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's on individual homes, and that's controversial within itself. But it allows people to, again, be off of the grid. So if the power goes down, your home just has its own power to run it anyways. So it um, puts less pressure on the, on the grid. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see. Two weeks ago on You Own the News, we covered a story of the American Civil Liberties Union of Oregon's sweeping settlement with North Bend School District over LGBTQ discrimination. The settlement came after the Oregon Department of Education conducted an investigation which discovered Principal Bill Lucero repeatedly failed to respond to LGBTQ students' complaints, including when his son, who attends the school, nearly hit the co-complainants of the case while yelling homophobic slurs. It was also found that students were forced to read Bible verses as punishment. The settlement places the North Bend School District under the Oregon Department of Education supervision for the next five years and requires both the school police officer, Jason Griggs, and Principal Lucero to leave their jobs. Under the settlement, Lucero will be reassigned within the district. 
The story continued last Wednesday at North Bend High School when nearly 100 students walked out in protest of Lucero's removal. Lucero stepped outside with the students to encourage them to do well through their final weeks of classes. As he told the students to go back inside, members of the crowd hugged him and began chanting, Free Bill. A student-led petition was being passed around for signatures in support of reversing Lucero's part of the settlement. I feel like the only way to sort of uncover and reveal the mysteries here is to talk to a student who goes to that school because it sounds so blatantly horrible, the things that were happening, and it's hard to imagine a hundred or more young people wanting to stand with that. I think there's a tendency, and again, this is just putting ourselves in the mind of a student, I think there's a tendency for people to forgive and also students are going to want to kind of keep the status quo. They don't necessarily want change and when they're in front of this person all the time, um, he's probably a good guy. If he's if he's gotten to the position of being a principal, there's he's probably got some good qualities about him. It sounds like he's did some pretty horrible things as well. But that resistance to change, we see it uh, across the board in school systems and different kinds of progressive policies yeah i don't know his job is to in many ways care and look after his students all of his students and if members of the lgbtq community are going to school every day and not feeling safe and not feeling supported then i do think that that is a failure on his part especially if he is taking part in the discrimination The University of Oregon ASUO Senate passed a resolution on Wednesday, May 23rd, that endorses a version of the BDS, or Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions Movement. The sanction prohibits the ASUO from patronizing companies that help to fund Israeli settlements in Palestine and encourages the rest of the UO community to follow suit. The resolution was made to mirror similar boycotts that were done during apartheid in South Africa. These companies include Sabra Tribe, Hewlett Packard Company, SodaStream, Motorola, and more. The resolution was passed with a 12 to 6 vote in the Senate, but has been very controversial on campus. Some students who oppose the resolution believe that it is anti-Semitic and may lead to anti-Semitic crimes on campus. UO President Michael Schill has claimed that BDS contradicts the ASUO mission to support the interests of all students in a diverse community, while those who support the resolution say that BDS is an inclusive, anti-racist group and that the resolution is meant to not only show support for Palestinian people living in Palestine, but also to create a safe environment on campus for people of color. So for people who don't know, can you explain what patronizing companies looks like? For example, at an ASUO Senate meeting, if they're buying snacks, Sabra Hummus will not be there. They will not be purchasing things from those companies. Um, So that's just the ASUO money, but they're encouraging all of the other departments and facets of the University of Oregon to also boycott these companies and divest from these companies. Thank you. Uh, I I think it's important to note, especially about the President Schill's comments, that the ASUO is supposed to be making sure that the campus is inclusive for everyone, even when things are uh, happening that may be unpopular or unsupported by a group of students on campus. Uh, Someone once asked the question, well, what do resolutions mean? And the response that I was that I learned was not a whole lot. Uh, it doesn't mean that these things for sure need to be followed or that they have a widespread impact. It is just a formal stance saying this is what the ASUO believes in and supports. So I think moving forward, something to look out for is 
what happens next. I've been hearing a lot about this and both sides pretty um, heavily because I think it's such an emotional issue. One interesting thing that I've heard a lot from uh, members of the Jewish community is that if you have no ties to Israel or no family there, then you shouldn't really have a say in this, which I think can be really complicated because I think on either side, whatever way the resolution goes, some people might end up feeling uncomfortable. It's hard as a non-Jewish person to take any kind of stance on this, but also I think you have to take a look at what's happening in Palestine and look at that objectively as well, because there are Palestinian people who go to the U of O who also have ties to that land, and it's um, impossible to dismiss either side's sort of stake here. And there have been abuses coming from both sides at either side. You know, comments on both petitions have been pretty abusive. Um, and I just think it's this is a very d difficult and sensitive issue um, that people are definitely approaching from a mostly emotional place. That'll do it for a week in review. Stay tuned for the feature story on developments on River Road. Hey, this is Matthew Dennis with You Own the News. You're about to hear a story about the River Road Santa Clara neighborhood project. It's a pretty complicated story, and I've been reporting on it for over six months now. It's part of my terminal project for the journalism program at the University of Oregon. So this is what I've been able to put together so far, but it is a lot to unpack. So next week, I'm going to be on You on the News discussing my reporting process and other elements of this project. Thanks a lot, and take care. Jan Spencer wants to tear up the parking lot of Reality Kitchen Bakery and Cafe. This parking lot right here could become an awesome place. And, and I'm not a developer. It's not my $10 million that's going to make this be. There's got to be private investment, you know. There could be the proverbial commercial down below. There could be residential up above. Even without the $10 million to develop the parking lot, Spencer wants to transform what's here. This aligns with what his neighborhood, River Road, is also trying to do. The intent of the River Road Santa Clara Neighborhood Project is to enhance the future of these communities through cooperative action on a five-pillared neighborhood plan. Transportation, economic development, community building, parks and natural resources, and finally, a miscellaneous pillar, which includes other important topics like public safety. This cooperation is the element that makes this initiative stand out from similar municipal plans. Visions and actions are organized from resident input gathered through meetings with city planners and community leaders. The goal is that through listening to resident hopes and concerns, this project will have more of a chance of sustained success for all community members and neighborhood groups, and in so doing, become a template for initiatives like this across the country. Spencer represents the permaculture crowd, working toward residential transformation shaped in concert with natural systems. The kind of convergence of permaculture and, uh, and civic culture, you know, the neighborhood association, urban land use, uh, repairing what's already here. Permaculture practitioners like Spencer design their homes to simulate natural systems that promote sustainable ecology. Spencer's yard is an ode to permaculture. The front, a walled canopy of grapevines. Lemon and tangerine trees lounge amid various succulents and cacti in a winter-protected sunroom facing various nut trees in the backyard. A pair of thousand-gallon cisterns collect rainwater for thirsty plants. Compost piles surround solar panels 
and in the middle stands Spencer's Bungalow Edition, built by his own two hands from reclaimed wood and heated through passive solar energy. I would think probably from what I can tell with our discussions and what I know, I'm probably probably one of the more out there voices for this kind of convergence of interests. Even though Spencer represents one of the more out there groups in the community, he has grown to support the River Road Santa Clara neighborhood project. A lot of the city policies and the city goals are really good. When I look through this document called uh, uh, Envision Eugene for the first time, there's a lot of really good stuff in that document in terms of land use, economic development, transportation, parks and uh, open spaces, and even, even the realm of, of kind of, you know, sustainability and resilience. The rhetoric is there. Envision Eugene is the city's planning document, adopted in 2016 and encompassing lofty goals for the city in the next five to ten years. For Spencer, Envision Eugene was an epiphany. And when I became aware of Envision Eugene, when I already have these kind of vision ideas of my own, and I saw what Envision Eugene was writing about, I said, they're already saying this stuff. This opening comes with the concern that the city is still not doing enough. And of course, they want a widened belt line. They're doing. You got the city's kind of a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You know, the city's doing some great stuff, and then there's other stuff going on that just doesn't fit. Spencer's Jekyll and Hyde comment describes the immense challenge of this project, compromising to meet the goals of all people and groups living in River Road and Santa Clara. The divergent history of these two areas, River Road began first as a place where the native Kalapuya tribe hunted and gathered along the Willamette River. This managed wilderness became a byway for European settlers who built farms in the fertile alluvial soil beginning in the late 19th century, creating a checkerboard of agricultural plots. The gravel road became a four-lane highway in the 1950s, connecting Eugene to Albany, Salem, and Portland to the north. Large tracts of farmland were then divided into suburban plots to accommodate the city's northern expansion. In 1961, the East-West Beltline Highway was completed, forming River Road's northern border and creating a much more suburban and commercialized Santa Clara neighborhood at the convergence of River Road and the Beltline Highway. Uniform suburbs define Santa Clara's interior landscape, whereas River Road contains original farmhouses and now sprawling gated residences surrounded by a mix of tiny 1940s and 50s aluminum-sided boxes, 1960s and 70s style ranches, and recent infill, newly constructed homes on dense, further subdivided parcels. Where Santa Clara is a bustling center of commerce, River Road's commercial diversity is primarily made up of auto shops, used car lots, tanning salons, coffee trucks, and cheap fried food. Its lack of access to fresh produce or a grocery store constitutes the neighborhood as a food desert. Residents want to encourage more local business along the highway, but this most likely means more traffic along the busy byway. One possible source of commerce and food is local agriculture. Though most of River Road's farms are gone, many homeowners still maintain gardens and edible plots in the fertile soil. There are a small but appreciable number of people in the neighborhood who are kind of pioneers in doing this kind of stuff. So I start out here um, about sort of green and resilient River Road because of course, a uh, indigenous person 
they were, were here long before the white people were. But this is just to acknowledge that there's a remarkable wisdom that predates the, uh, the Europeans, and uh, one could say it's kind of all downhill once the Europeans arrived. But we're here to kind of try to reverse a little bit. In the late 20th century, people looking to step away from traditional society moved into the River Road neighborhood to establish more communal living. Much of River Road and Santa Clara remains unincorporated land in Lane County. Many permaculture advocates moved to River Road in order to establish a place outside the bonds of municipal governance. This compares Atlanta, Georgia and Barcelona, Spain, which have approximately the same populations. And these are in scale. This is the space that built up Atlanta takes. This is the space of built up Barcelona at about the same population. Atlanta takes up about 25 or 30 times more space. So anyway, I just think it's important to understand just how outrageously <coughs> mistaken our whole, our whole civilization is to build something like, like this. And it's just Spencer has been working to reverse this mistake since he moved to River Road in 2000. Beginning with ripping out his driveway, he has transformed his property into a permaculture paradise. It wasn't like a, a home run. It was a grand slam home run. It, 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 I couldn't have designed a better situation for this house. So what I've been doing is transforming this house for the last 17 years. Though this vision might be attractive to some, it can be in direct contrast to his neighbor's expectations. Michelle Renee, who helps to run the organic farm, an alternative living community at Dharmalaya and River Road explains. I wanted to say that uh, along that vein, the property at Vistara down, down Horn Lane, we, we had a letter a few years ago from um, the city that said uh, there's multiple complaints about you having workshops and, and markets and activities and and you need to cease immediately. You can't do anything there, and you can't have foot traffic or bicycle traffic between Dharmalaya and Vistara. It's like down the street. Oh, and it was what? just like this extreme letter, and then we... Through the unique planning process adopted by Eugene, River Road's permaculture voice can be heard, and their viewpoint can be worked into the River Road Santa Clara project. It probably began with back in what, 2006 with the transition project. Transition project was a uh, collaboration between the city, River Road, and Santa Clara to decide what is the heritage of River Road, Santa Clara, what are their, their goals. The recommendations of, uh, was that River Road, Santa Clara come up with a, a plan of what River Road, Santa Clara needs. <clears throat> so. So they got together for the first time in a group called Scroll, Santa Clara River Road Outreach and Learning Project. It was decided between the two groups that just learn your priorities for living in River Road, Santa Clara. And so face-to-face -face contact of over 700 people, they said, well, it seems like now we know what people's priorities are and what they want. Our next thing is to start with the neighborhood plans. And so, After knocking on door after door to describe what people wanted for a livable place, the setting seemed ripe to take action. From 2012 to 2015, neighborhood organizers went from living room to living room, having vision sessions to determine the ideals and the elements of an enhanced river road in Santa Clara. Then, in 2016, the script group evolved into the Citizens Advisory Committee, which served as a, as a mediator and a facilitator between Eugene's planning department 
and each Eugene neighborhood. Carlene Riley, a political activist in the neighborhood for more than 30 years and a member of the CAC, explains the importance of cooperative action. You have to focus on best outcomes. You have to keep your eye on, on where you want to be and not let your fears overwhelm you. I have hope that, that people do have ideas. People do want clean air. They do want clean water. They do want to protect the trees. Uh, and when you the faceted puzzle, then but you've got all of the pieces together. You can see all of the community needs that are represented. After over 400 neighborhood residents attended the plan's kickoff in October of 2017, River Road and Santa Clara worked for the next several months to establish commissariate goals and identify tensions endemic to these goals. This even includes concerns about laying sidewalks in River Road. While a sidewalk sounds like a benign goal, permaculture advocates fear that removing pedestrians from neighborhood roads will encourage more car traffic. Digging into the roadside might also tear into an existing tree canopy, and removing soil could increase toxic runoff into the Willamette River. In order to meet these obstacles head-on, Eugene's Planning Department and the CAC held an April meeting to address these tensions in working groups and how they might be allayed through compromise. This direct approach makes the project stand out for senior city planner Zach Galloway. So what makes this unique is um, the collaborative nature of the project um, and what makes River Road and Santa Clara different. Um, and you know, I think it is the, the level of trust that's been established um, and now the collaborative approach that we're taking um, in doing this large comprehensive neighborhood planning effort. This trust has been sown over the course of the past year with the redevelopment of River Road's Greenway along the Willamette River. In order to discourage illicit drug use and petty crime and encourage more residential activity, Eugene and the River Road Community Organization came together to develop a park adoption plan. Carrie Carl of Eugene's Park and Open Spaces explains. This was awesome, let's talk, let's figure out where you want to go. And then I started to create the work plans and kind of shepherd people into our what we have an adoption agreement, um, which basically provides uh, an overview for that volunteer group of what they can expect for the next two years. Even this agreement, though, chronicles a difference between the side-by-side -side communities. The East and West Bank Trail stopped. So that's one of the, our major goals. Somewhere down the line, that, that whole uh, West Bank Trail should be extended all the way up through Santa Clara. Laying new asphalt for the trail, says Finnegan, would most likely displace many trees, cut through private property, and lead to construction noise and delays. Perhaps the most confounding challenge to Santa Clara and River Road is the fact that each neighborhood still lies partially outside of Eugene's municipal bounds. This means that there are three different fire departments and three different police departments servicing Santa Clara. In contrast, only the three patrol car Lane County Sheriff serves River Road along with the rest of the almost 4,800 square miles of Lane County that stretches all the way to the Pacific Coast. Becoming part of Eugene's police beat, though, carries with it more taxes and governance, something that goes against River Road's tradition. Still, the process and the consideration is there for River Road and Santa Clara to forge active, participatory communities where people actively work towards a better place. For Jan Spencer, this is a hopeful first step towards a better place to live. There's lots of entities in any community 
that in a broad sense have overlapping ideals. I mean, everybody wants to live in a healthy, uh, clean place. And uh, so the, there's, there's lots of opportunity to make common cause with all kinds of other groups. And, and this planning process is providing an opportunity to, to do a lot more of that. The next step in the River Road Santa Clara Neighborhood Plan is to spread word that the community will discuss action steps towards realizing vision goals and what planners hope will be well-attended meetings at North Eugene High School on both Wednesday, June 6th at 6 p.m. and Sunday, June 10th at 2.30 p.m. This is Matthew Dennis with KWVA reporting. That'll do it for you on the news. Thank you for listening. Make sure to tune in next Wednesday and every Wednesday at 7 p.m. to KWVA Eugene or online at kwvaradio.org for you on the news.